quarter of a million Americans have now died of COVID-19. Donald Trump, though, continues to interfere with President-elect Biden's transition, even as Dr. Fauci and other public health officials have spoken out about it. It's Thanksgiving week, and millions are trying to figure out how to celebrate in a safe, physically distant way. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. If you're like me, you're aching at the thought of an incomplete Thanksgiving this year. After all, Thanksgiving is about the family and the food, but mostly the family. And even if it means you may not have to hash out the election with that Trumpy cousin of yours, you always like to see him anyway, because family. And especially after the year we just had, it would be amazing to have everyone under one roof, trading stories and enjoying one another's being. And it absolutely sucks that that's not going to be Thanksgiving this year. And if it is, we should think twice. Because for 250,000 American families, this is the first of every incomplete Thanksgiving because they've lost a loved one to COVID-19. If nothing else, we don't ever want our celebration of family to be the reason why our family may never be whole again. I don't mean to be a downer or belittle of the sacrifices we're making for safety in the midst of this pandemic, but I do mean to put it all in context to remind us what's at stake. When historians write about this pandemic, it won't have been the earliest months of the pandemic that they write about. It will probably be this wave, the one that's taking place right now, that could last through the next few months. Hospitals are already crowded to the brim, many full or nearing their filling point. The prospects for mortality over the next months are grim. But that's not a foregone conclusion. What happens next is still within our making. We can choose to put on our masks, choose to reduce our social engagements, choose to practice physical distancing and wash our hands. We can choose to put our families and our communities forward. For a lot of young folks, the risks we might take are driven by the notion that as young people, we're less likely to get seriously ill or die from COVID-19. And while that's statistically true, there's still so much we don't know about the virus, its long-term complications, or even its medium-term ones. This summer, we started to hear more about quote-unquote long COVID or long haulers. Estimates suggest that up to a third of COVID-19 patients experience symptoms that last longer than a month, some with symptoms lasting over three months. These symptoms include severe fatigue, malaise, shortness of breath, memory lapses, inability to concentrate, or muscle weakness, among other symptoms. We're only now starting to understand the way that coronavirus affects different organs, and microbiologists think that these symptoms may reflect underlying organ infections that we don't quite fully grasp because they're not usually the ones that kill people from COVID-19. Today, we'll talk about long COVID with Fiona Lowenstein, a long hauler herself and founder of Body Politics COVID-19 Support Group, after the break. Our guest today is Fiona Lowenstein. She's founder of Body Politic, a queer feminist wellness and event collective, and co-founder of the Body Politic COVID-19 Support Group, which provides resources and support to COVID-19 patients and providers across the globe. She spent three months with COVID-19 symptoms after she got sick back in March. Fiona, thank you so much for coming on today and, and speaking with us about long haulers and uh, the experience of, of long COVID. Thanks for having me. It's, it's good to see this issue getting more attention, and, and I'm glad to be here. Well, we're grateful for your advocacy. Um, can you just tell us what, what are people referring to when they say long hauler? 
So the term long hauler is, I think, most commonly used in the U.S. Some of your listeners may have also heard the term long COVID. Um, These are sort of used interchangeably to refer to any patients that have been sick with COVID and remained sick for more than two to four weeks. So that includes Mm -hmm. folks like me who were sick for three months and got better. It includes those who are still sick, six, seven, eight months down the line. And it also includes those who are sick for, you know, a shorter amount of time, a month and a half, two months, something like that. Can you walk us through your experience? Uh, I, I can imagine, you know, you, you got sick, got tested, knew that you had COVID-19, and then the symptoms just didn't go away, or, or did they morph over time? How, what was the experience like? Yeah, so I got sick very early in the pandemic coming to the U.S. I live in New York City, and I got I, I first showed symptoms on March 13th, um, which was, mm. I think, kind of the day that things started locking down here. Um, so the virus was very new, and, you know, media coverage of it at that time was, I think, very different from kind of what we're seeing right now. So um, when I initially got sick, I expected, you know, as a young 26-year-old without any pre-existing conditions that I would kind of ride it out at home like the common flu. Um, So my first symptoms were fever um, and a little bit of congestion in my chest. Um, But within a couple of days, I was having pretty severe shortness of breath. Um, I couldn't, you know, walk anywhere. I couldn't talk. Mm. I I basically could not breathe unless I was really lying on my back, just focusing on breathing. Um, So at the recommendation of my uh, GP, I went to the ER. Um, I was admitted to the hospital for uh, a few days. um, And I I was not placed on a ventilator, just received supplemental oxygen. Um, Once my shortness of breath seemed to be getting better, once my fever was gone, um, I was discharged. I think we all assumed that I would, you know, get better pretty quickly. Um, That was not what happened. When I got home, I I started immediately to notice new symptoms. So the first thing I noticed was I I took out an essential oil, a lavender essential oil to, you know, diffuse around my bedroom to try and relax me. And I realized I couldn't smell it at all. Um, And and then the second thing was GI issues. Um, I, I was having having severe nausea, some vomiting, diarrhea, and this persisted for about two to three weeks after I was discharged from the hospital, correlated with pretty extreme weight loss because I had a very hard time eating anything. Um, and, And so these symptoms continued and other ones emerged. There was, at the beginning when I was first sick, there was no kind of nasal congestion, right? But then I had severe sinus pain, nasal congestion, post-nasal drip, sore throat. Um, Mm. This all went on until June. I also experienced some dermatological issues, some circulatory issues. um, And over time, it slowly got better. It was an upward trajectory, but it was by no means linear. Mm. So it it was sort of an evolution of the symptomatology that then persisted in this sort of chronic form. Is that experience, um, the kind of symptoms that you had, is that experience pretty consistent with what you've um, heard in, in your reporting and your um, uh, your advocacy with other long haulers? Or are there other symptom constellations that people are experiencing uh, and that are being documented in the literature? So the GI symptoms that I experienced seem to be pretty common. Um, a lot of people experience those. Same with the dermatological symptoms. Um, I also experienced really intense headaches and eye pain, and this seems to be very common as well, along with fatigue. People report um, feeling post-exertion malaise is the term that's often used for this within you know, patients in, in other chronic illness communities who experience it. But trying to do something small, whether it's gardening in your backyard or taking your dog for a walk and you know feeling immediately worse. And often that feeling of feeling worse is 
is is fatigue and, and an intense headache and eye pain. And that was something I experienced as well. Um, however, there are a lot of patients having much more significant neurological issues than I dealt with. Mm. And I think that that is a topic that is starting to get more attention now, but was previously ignored. Um, and the other issue that I'll mention, which which I experienced in some ways, there does seem to be some sort of connection between the virus and patients with menstrual cycles are experiencing worsened symptoms during their menstrual period. So we're not sure what exactly that means, whether it's related to hormones, reproductive health, endocrine system, but there does seem to be some sort of correlation between the, the symptoms getting worse and people's menstrual cycles. Um, and that's something mm. that I actually still experience to this day. It's one of the few things that I still deal with is uh, when I get my period, I tend to have uh, flu-like symptoms with it, which is something that I never mm. experienced in the past. And what are the mechanisms that scientists are trying to uh, explain this through? Um, you know, we know that there's there are a number of different infectious diseases that sort of trip a tripwire in the body's immune response, which causes these long-term symptoms. Um, what what do we think is happening here? So there's several different explanations and uh, potential explanations. And one thing I should also point out is that I am unique in the fact that I was hospitalized. Um, many COVID long haulers never were hospitalized. Many were initially diagnosed with, with mild symptoms or had mild presentations. And so when we talk about long COVID, we are talking about a, an array of, of conditions and syndromes that people are experiencing. So on the one hand, you do have patients who are hospitalized and some of them have post-COVID or, or long COVID symptoms that are directly related to being on a ventilator. Um, then we're also seeing folks with organ damage and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, there's this experience that's closer to what I have of just these long-term symptoms. Now, uh, scientists and doctors think this could be something that's specific to COVID, right? It, it could be, you know, a, a novel presentation of this virus. So the virus is new. We don't know that much about it. Or it could be related to uh, conditions that we've seen emerge um, with other patients who have had other other viral infections. Um, so a condition that gets brought up a lot is um, ME-CFS, myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and that's a condition that often affects patients after a viral condition and after a viral infection. And it shares many similarities with, with some of the symptoms we're seeing present with COVID patients, like the light sensitivity and the post-exertion malaise, um, and as well as some of these neurological and, and circulatory problems. So some patients, now that we're reaching kind of the six, seven, eight month mark with, with COVID, we now have patients who have been sick for that amount of time. So there are patients who are now getting secondary diagnoses of ME-CFS, in some cases POTS, um, mast cell activation syndrome. So there are other chronic conditions and disabilities that these patients are also now being uh, diagnosed for. So I think, you know, we have to see with time whether or not this is going to be a situation where most patients either get better or get diagnosed with something that, you know, we already we already understand something about, or whether this really is a unique post-COVID syndrome. And I'll also say that a lot of patients and researchers are hesitant to use the term post-COVID because it's difficult to tell when mm. exactly the acute case, the acute phase of the virus ends, especially for these patients who have the initially mild symptom onsets, right? If you've if you had a mild symptom onset, you may have had a fever of, you know, 100 degrees, but you may have that fever for three months straight. So, you know, it's hard to say, is, is that mild? Is that, was there a clear change from kind of the acute phase to a post-viral stage? Or is that, you know, all part of COVID? And I think that's part of the reason why people like to yeah. use this term long COVID right now. And what you're pointing to is how hard it is to actually generate meaningful definitions early on in the advent of a disease, because that's where we are. And sometimes we forget this, that it's been 
it feels like forever since the pandemic hit. But, you know, in the advent of what we know about most diseases, this is about as new as it gets. And so, you know, Fiona, what you're pointing to is the fact that we don't actually know when COVID starts or ends, right? We know that it starts when you're when you're exposed, when the virus hits a viral load enough in your body to be detectable. But we actually don't know how long it really stays in the body. We, we assume that it gets completely killed off, but we do know that there are a lot of viruses that actually do go dormant in certain cells in the body. And, you know, we don't know for sure that that's not, that's not something that happens with COVID-19. And beyond that, um, we're still empirically trying to cobble together what the symptom structure looks like. Because if you think about it, right, if you want to know what a disease does, you take all the people who had the disease and look at, all right, what what happened most commonly? What happened at the extremes, right? And what does, then does that tell us about what the experience of quote unquote COVID-19 illness is? And we're still explaining that. Can, can you give us a sense of what proportion of patients will have quote unquote long COVID, right? Will have COVID symptoms that last you know, longer than that four week uh, mark? So it's difficult for us to know right now. Um, The CDC has estimated that about 35% of non-hospitalized patients report still not feeling recovered after after two to three weeks. Um, So those folks would count as long COVID patients kind of based on the definition that we've been using. Um, I think a lot of us think that 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 number may be underreported. So it's important to note that a lot of long COVID patients, um, a a significant number, were not able to test positive for the virus. and, And this often has to do with the fact that if you got sick in March or April in New York City, for example, and you're a long COVID patient based there, um, it was very hard to access COVID diagnostic testing at that time. The only reason that I was able to access it was because I was hospitalized. So almost everyone else I know, all the other patients who got sick at that point, they weren't able to access it until mid-April, late April, early May at best. And patients were also being told to stay home and and to not go out and get tested. So that proves really difficult when we're thinking about these numbers, right? Because those patients are not even kind of listed as as COVID patients. Then there's Mm -hmm. also the fact that if you tested positive and then you retested and tested negative, in many states, you're going to be considered recovered. But a lot of those patients, again, still have these kind of long-term sequelae. I mean, there's there's a patient that I'm talking with. You mentioned the idea of reactivation. There's a patient that I work with uh, in Massachusetts who um, recently developed shingles, and her doctor mm-hmm. is wondering whether this is perhaps a result of COVID. Um, and so I think what we're talking about, can COVID reactivate? Can it also trigger the reactivation of other viruses? Um, these are questions that we don't really know yet. So the numbers are, are hard to estimate right now. I mean, I think the CDC's numbers are, are decent to look at. There's also, of course, numbers of hospitalized patients, patients and those percentages tend to be higher um, because patients who are on ventilators do tend to have longer term problems um, kind of across the board in a way that those who you know did not seek hospitalization may not. Um, but we just don't know at this point. Body Politic has a patient-led um, research team that is conducting surveys with patients um, who have tested positive as well as those who have not and kind of separating them into cohorts to compare the symptomologies between these groups to try and understand you know how many patients are there out there that we don't even know about because we don't have them listed as COVID patients mm-hmm. because they only received a clinical diagnosis and not a positive diagnostic test result. Yeah. The uh, interesting point that this all makes, um, you know, beyond the, the the really important need to pay attention to people who may be suffering long-term consequences and, and symptoms of their, their coronavirus infection is that this changes the way that we probably should be talking about COVID-19, right? And the way that we think about communicating in the public, because a lot of people sort of operate with this assumption that not only am I less likely, quote unquote, to get really sick, 
but it's going to go away quickly and I'll be just fine. But that's not the case for upwards of 35% of people who are infected. How do you think we need to be talking about COVID-19 generally, given what we know about the experience of long COVID? And how do you think that might change the perception that a lot of people have uh, about this pandemic? And then lastly, one of the more frightening aspects of this is that we don't know that there's not going to be serious recurrence over the long term or that there aren't very serious long-term consequences simply because the longest we've ever known anybody to have been infected for or from is about nine, 10 months out, right? And uh, what are some of the worries that you might have with that? Yeah, so I think your your first question is great, kind of how do we, how should we be talking about COVID-19 differently given the emergence of long COVID? And as a journalist, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, covering patient issues over the course of the past, you know, seven or eight months. And I think, you know, certainly the myth that COVID is a mild flu that you recover from within two to four weeks, certainly we we have to myth bust that. Um, but I think also there, there remains a huge emphasis on protecting the elderly. And while that's incredibly important, and it, it's definitely been demonstrated that the elderly are more susceptible to, to you know, some of the, the more intense symptoms of this virus, um, I I think that a lot of young people are kidding themselves if they think that they're invincible to this. Um, so many of the long haulers in my support group are in their 20s and 30s. Many of them did not have pre-existing conditions. Um, and many of them were actually taking you know, significant precautions, but it was just so early in the pandemic that, for instance, they were going grocery shopping without masks on. Um, in my case, I'm fairly certain that I was infected by a friend who came to my house three days before everything locked down in New York City. She got sick before my eyes. She went home immediately mm. afterward. I had symptoms three days later. So that's that's, that's all it takes, right? One person kind of coming into your home who happens to, to be infected, symptomatic or not. Um, so I think as we talk about this, and certainly as we talk about, you know, lockdowns and the impact on the economy, we also have to be talking about what the impact on the economy is going to be if we have a, a third wave, right? We're talking about the second wave of COVID, but what happens when there's this third wave of chronically ill and slow healing survivors, um, you know, who are unable to work? A lot of COVID patients have had to leave their jobs and are having trouble accessing disability benefits. Um, and, and that puts a real burden on our on our economy as well, you know, even if you're just looking at it from that standpoint. Um, in terms of, you know, what what do we do next and, and how do we kind of account for this, uh, given that it's a novel pandemic and that we don't know what this looks like a year down the line or two years down the line? Um, I think we're all very eager to have this uh, condition fully researched. Um, and there are several studies that have that are ongoing in the U.S. and in, in other countries that are trying to better understand this condition. And I think that's crucial um, when we talk about patient experiences and when we do research, it's really important to, in my opinion, expand the pool to really include a diversity of patient experiences. So a lot of times mm -hmm. the media has focused on um, patients who are hospitalized and also patients who have that positive diagnostic test result. Um, whether or not you were hospitalized for COVID, it has something to do with how serious your condition was, but it also has a lot to do with who you are where you're seeking care and the the timing, right? If I had sought care even a week later than I did in New York City, I don't know that I would have been hospitalized. Um, so in a lot of cases, this also means the exclusion of black and brown voices from this conversation, the exclusion of undocumented people, um, people who had a harder time accessing care and accessing testing are less likely to be included in this research and less likely to be included in the media narrative that's emerging of long COVID. And that's something that's really important to keep in mind because I've even heard people, you know, saying that long COVID seems to mostly affect wealthy white people. And, and th that's mm. not the case, right? Those are the faces that you're seeing on the news and those are the people that you're hearing from because maybe we were more more likely to, to get a, a proper diagnosis. 
Um, but ultimately, you know, research and, and the narrative needs to be expanded to include everyone who's dealing with this, including those who haven't received a clinical diagnosis or a diagnostic positive test result, but believe that they are experiencing symptoms related to a COVID infection. Mm. And in your mind, um, would you consider COVID a chronic illness? I think long COVID is proving to potentially be a chronic illness, yes. Um, and I mm -hmm. think that with all, you know, it's important to note that a lot of the issues we're seeing with COVID are new and are novel because we're in a pandemic and it's a new virus. But a lot of the issues we're seeing with long COVID patients are pervasive in many chronic illness communities. You know, un under education of clinicians on, on chronic illnesses is, mm -hmm. is, is widespread. Um, additionally, you know, facing disbelief from family and friends and employers, having to navigate disability benefit systems. We say that COVID impacts, you know, all systems of the body at this point, and that's pretty clear. It also impacts all areas of a patient's life. Um, and I think that, you know, at Body Politic, we're starting to build partnerships with folks from other chronic illness communities and, and, you know, people working in the disability justice space, because there's a lot that we can learn from those people right now. We really need to be listening. Um, the demands mm -hmm. that, that COVID patients are making are actually demands that, that people from those groups have been making for decades. We just, we just haven't paid attention. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you, um, sharing your, your experience and, uh, what you've learned about, about long COVID through your journalism and, and your advocacy. Um, where can people go if they wanted to learn more about long COVID or, you know, feel like they might be people who are, are suffering uh, long COVID right now? Yeah. So um, if there are any patients out there in need of support, um, you can go to wearebodypolitic.com. Um, we have a COVID page that has um, information on how to access our support group. There's just a short form you fill out. You do not have to include your full name or your real name if you don't want to. We just ask you a couple questions about your experience, um, and then we onboard you into the group. Um, for healthcare workers or other professionals who want to lend support, we have an allied support network um, where you can sign up to engage it to offer webinars or ask me anything sessions with patients in our group. And I'll also mention that um, we just launched a social media campaign on COVID patient allyship that is really about, you know, getting getting those folks who either had COVID and survived it and recovered or who have not been infected to continue to engage with COVID patient issues, to self-educate, to raise awareness within your communities, to donate to patient-led groups like ours. Um, and so that can also be seen on our Instagram at WeAreBodyPolitik. Mm -hmm. And we usually uh, ask everyone uh, the, the final last question, and you shared a bit about your experience, but how have you been spending uh, these days in this pandemic? Well, my experience of the kind of first half of the pandemic was quite different from most people's because mm. I was not attending Zoom happy hours or going on socially distanced picnics. Um, and I mentioned this also because I think this is something that is neglected in the conversation of the COVID patient experience. It's not just physical isolation, it's social isolation a lot of the time as well, especially when we're in a pandemic. Um, but, but you know, once I started to, to regain my health, I was eager to get get back on my bike. Um, so that's kind of my main form of getting out into the city these days, riding my bike to the farmer's market and up and down the Hudson River. Um, and that's the main way that I see New York City since I don't have a car. Um, so it's, it's been really, you know, spending a lot of time in my apartment, doing a lot of yoga, um, working on the support group, writing, writing pieces, and then occasionally getting out for a walk and a bike ride. Um, and, you know, once in a while, a socially distanced hang. But um, I've been pretty cautious because I will say that having this virus and getting sick for, you know, being sick for as long as I was, it, it, it makes you a little more wary to, to go attend, you know, the, the birthday party in the park. <laughs> mm, mm, that's, uh, that's true. And, um, we really appreciate your advocacy and your journalism and, uh, and sharing your experience with us today. 
Uh, and that was Fiona Lowenstein. She is the founder of Body Politic and uh, the co-founder of the Body Politic COVID-19 support group. Fiona, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. At this point in the show, I'd usually tell you what I was watching right now. But honestly, it's Thanksgiving week. It's been a hell of a year, and I'm not watching anything but my daughter, my Thanksgiving Day football, and my turkey slowly disappear as I eat it. But actually, there is one thing. 12 million families are headed into the holidays knowing that at the end of the year, the small but insignificant lifeline of unemployment benefits will run out. They need and deserve a COVID-19 relief package, and they need and deserve it now. Next week, I'll be joined by Dr. Saira Medhid, infectious disease doctor and official with the New York City Health and Hospitals, for a special mailbag episode. We'll be answering questions submitted by listeners. All the COVID-19 news we haven't yet covered. See you next week. Oh, and since I know all you dissectors are itching for great gifts for your family and friends this holiday season, check out our new America Dissected merch. There's a Science Always Wins sweatshirt, t-shirt, and hat. Head over to crooked.com slash store and shop now. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixers and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takai Asuzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El Your host. Thanks for listening. 